Welcome to the Horizon Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our mission as a church is to win people to Jesus Christ, disciple people in Jesus Christ, and send people for Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more or partner with us, simply go to horizon.org. We hope this episode encourages you in your walk with Jesus as you continue to grow in His love and truth. These past few months, during my Optimisfits book tour, I've got to speak around the world. And in all my speaking adventures, this is what I found. The nations are hungry for and being filled by the God of hope. Don't give up on our generation. We are in the presence. Enthusiasm for the God of hope is spreading. In fact, the word enthusiasm comes from the etymological roots en in theos, God. When you are in God, you can't help but be enthusiastic. Speaking before each crowd has confirmed in my heart that our generation will go down as the one that sought the face of God with passion. Spirit is falling on all flesh, people are getting excited while young men are seeing visions and old men are dreaming dreams and maidens are prophesying. And something tells me this is only the beginning. This is so fun for me. I, I got to speak here, I think, like eight, nine years ago, and getting to be here again this morning, such an honor. Bob Botsford is a legend, and uh, the Bible says give honor to where honors due. Can we give Pastor Bob a big round of applause for all that God's done through him, being faithful to his calling? Amazing God. Um, yeah, as you saw in the video, I, I'm a bit tired because I've been traveling uh, like almost nonstop over the past really long time. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, I, I want to share with you some of the content from my book, Optimisfits. It's about being an optimistic misfit, igniting a fierce rebellion against the despair that has defined our culture. So um, if you want to pick up that book, it'll be in the courtyard afterward. I'd love to write a little hope note in your book if you want. And when you buy a book, the money doesn't go to me. The royalties just go right back to the Ministry of Hope Generation because I really believe in spreading this message, and I want to see our world genuinely change. So let's talk about some of that from the scriptures today. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, if you would. Romans chapter 4. And I went an hour last night, so I'm not doing that today. I'll, I'll be generous. I'll be kind. The mind can only absorb what the sea can endure. Oh, you were here last night. What a boss. And I, I want to get a little video of you guys to show people that there is hope in San Diego. Can we do that? So on the count of three, would everyone say hello? One, two, three. Hi guys, I love this church, this is sick, this is going to be fun. We're going to have a fun morning, okay? Does that sound good? It's interesting because 20 years ago, we had Johnny Cash, Bob Hope, and Steve Jobs, and then they died, and now we have no cash, no hope, and no jobs. Lord, I pray that Kevin Bacon would not die in Jesus' name. Actually, I'm a vegetarian, so that joke doesn't really work, but, but it's actually true, um, we have means, but no meaning. We have enough to live by, but not enough to live for, as Viktor Frankl said. Even if you live in a trailer park, you have better commodities and creature comforts than medieval kings used to have. Even if you're like downward mobility vibes, you still have a lot more than even medieval kings and royalty uh, used to enjoy and possess. And even though uh, we have wealth and even though we have prosperity, it seems like we have less hope than ever, not just according to my opinion or, or spin, this is actually what uh, researchers and sociologists now tell us is that we are the number one most depressed generation in history. Part of that is actually because of social media when we compare our behind the scenes with other people's highlight reels at unfair intervals. Like I'm watching you party on your story when I'm stuck at a red light and you're watching the best moment of my day when, when you're alone in bed with your screen. And so 
We live in a generation of comparison. We live in a generation where uh, we, we are lacking our teleologic purport and purpose. And so my heart is like the reason I get up in the morning, the simplicity after complexity is I want to give the world hope. That's literally why God put me on this planet. And, and I want to give people hope. It's that simple. And so we're going to learn how we can get this hope in Romans chapter four. And if you would keep your Bible open, actually, we're going to go kind of all over the place in Romans. Um, so just track with me here. We'll start in verse 16. Romans chapter four, verse 16 says, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's key. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, this is a great phrase, who gives life to the dead and calls those things, watch this, calls those things which do not exist as though they did, Bara, something out of nothing. Now this is a key, verse 18. Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed. Would everyone please say, contrary to hope, in hope believed. So notice this theme of, of hope. So that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old. Hashtag no big deal. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened by faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The message of the universe is there is an empty tomb. We'll keep going in just a minute, but I want to really unpack this and exposit this and, and break this down hermeneutically. This is so important when it comes to receiving hope. Why do we need hope today? Because we as Americans consume more pills due to anxiety and depression than the rest of the earth combined by three times over. So I'm thankful that we have therapists and counselors and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and doctors and all of this stuff. But the truth of the matter is antidepressants are now the number one, another study said number two best-selling prescribed medications in a nation built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're stressed, depressed, distressed, and in debt over a trillion dollars to China, even though we're putting 10% taxes on tariffs and stuff. The truth of the matter is we're so depressed now that um, late teens all the way up to early 30s, suicide is the second leading cause of death. In all age groups, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death. So we have social activists trying to cure cancer and medical scientists, uh, social activists trying to cure AIDS, medical scientists trying to cure cancer. We need sacred optimists who are going to cure the disease of suicide. This is, a, this is an epidemic. There are more suicides than homicides in America. So when you watch Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy on Netflix, people get afraid of like Jeffrey Dahmer and stuff. But the truth is, you are more a danger to yourself statistically than anyone else. So, so we live in this generation of hopelessness and depression. And that's why I am so excited to be born for such a time as this. As Esther said, I am so glad we're here because we're the most powerful army is a generation that never quits. We're going to raise up and say, hashtag, the struggle is real, but so is God. Life is tough, but God is tougher. Life is a battle, but the battle is the Lord's. And no one ever injured their eyesight by looking on the bright side. So we're not going to complain because rose bushes have thorns. We're going to rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. Our hope will not be dictated by our circumstances. Our circumstances will always be dictated by our hope. Our past supply is not our last supply. The more desperate the case, the more space for God's grace. God's love is the coal that makes the train roll. So we're going to be strong when everything's going wrong because everything's going to be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And it's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay if you stay that way because the Bible says happy are those people whose God is... If we're on this mode of dust, hurtling through a sunbeam at 67,000 miles per hour, we might as well change the world while we're here. I'm just saying. So let's get back to our text. Romans 4. How do we get hope? We need hope. That's the one sticky idea and ideal I want to plant like inception into your subconscious. Like I really want you to get this. Hope. 
Paul uses the example of Abraham to give us hope. Now, Abraham has a very interesting story. God told him that he was going to have a baby. Uh, he showed him the stars in heaven and said, your, star, your, your descendants are going to be as multitudinous and, and numerous as the celestial bodies, the, the stars up in space. Now, what's interesting about the stars analogy is a star is born when a gaseous nebula collapses. So it's okay, you can collapse. It's not your destruction, it's your birth. Your breakdown will be someone else's breakthrough. And the stars, they're very fascinating. I, I don't know if, if you love like science and stuff, but I'm very obsessed with like quantum mechanics and astrophysics. If you look at stars, did you know there are more stars in space, this is true, than seconds have passed since the Earth was formed. There are more, listen to this, this is insane. There are more stars in space than words or sounds ever uttered by every human being to ever live. There are more stars in space than there are grains of sand on any seashore. And God says, look at the stars. That's how many kids you're going to have. And now think if you're Abraham. Now God's using this hyperbolic analogy to say you're going to have lots of kids. You're going to be the father of many nations. So shall your descendants be, as we read. Now, if you're Abraham, you're thinking, um, God, I'm 75 years old. Like, I think I'm a little over the hill when it comes to biologically being able to produce the fruit of the loom, the, the loins, offspring. Not loom, loins, whatever. <laughs> this is not an underwear commercial. <laughs> I've never done that before. That was funny. Please keep that in. That'll get a good laugh. Okay. They're like, should we edit that out? No, I thought it was funny. Okay. Um, Abraham has all these descendants promised to him when he's 75. Now, in fact, a year before he had his baby, uh, he was 99 and, and his wife was 89 in the story. And it says Sarah, his wife, laughed. She thought it was hilarious. And wouldn't you? Like, if you're 89 years old and God says you're going to have a baby, you would laugh. You're like, I'm, about, I'm 89. I'm about to wear diapers, eat mush, and have no teeth. And you're telling me I'm going to have a kid who's going to wear diapers, eat mush, and have no teeth. Like Lion King circle of life here. That's insane. You would think it's funny. Like you go to Walmart and you ask the clerk, hey, I'm, I need some help searching for, looking for maternity clothes. It's like, oh, okay, so for your great-great-granddaughter. No, 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 for me, I'm 89 and I'm expecting. You would laugh. A year later, God gave her a baby. What did God, so, so she, she laughed. A year later, God gave her a baby. What was the baby's name? Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. What was God saying? You can laugh in mockery when I give you a promise, but who has the last laugh now? I laugh in jubilee because God always gets the last laugh, sucker. So you better not laugh in scorn when I give you a promise because I'll always get the last laugh. And Abraham, he knew that God, even not considering the deadness of Sarah's womb, he could bring something out of nothing and raise life from death. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness that he'd be the father of many nations. But what's interesting is scholars tell us Abraham had to wait between 25 to 30 years before that promise came true. You have over 3,500 promises in the Bible. Wow, this book's incredible. Uh, there's 1,189 chapters, 66 books written by 40 different authors, 14 of which were written by Paul. It was written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents. It's the best-selling book of all time. And this book has over 3,500 promises. Wow. If you believe, wow, no matter how many problems I have, there are even more promises of God. He will be faithful to fulfill those promises, but there is generally always a gap between the time the promise is given and the time it comes to fruition. Just so you know. 106 times the Bible says to wait for God. There's 129 references to hope, the word hope, in 121 verses in the Bible. But know this, if you're going to have hope in God's promises, contrary to hope, Abraham in hope believed that God would perform that which he had promised, you're going to have to generally wait a long period of time. There's going to be an interval, an interim, between the time the promise is given and the time it comes to pass. So, a lot of you have lost your hope. Because it's this simple. You're not waiting. You're judging the rest of your life on this current season. And if you look at this current season and you judge the rest of your life on this present moment, you're going to think there's no hope. The problem with our generation is 90-some uh, percent of Jesus' parables were nature-based. He lived in an agricultural society of seeds, but we as Americans live in a, po in, in a post-industrial revolution epoch and era 
of switches. Like, did you know you, you touch your iPhone 2,500 times every day? And you pull it out once every six minutes, 150 times per day. So, so we, we have instant gratification. Think how many buttons you press every day. Touch screens you touch every day. You get what you want right away. Like food, this has never happened before in history. Food, we get Hot Pockets and can make them in two minutes, but we burn our mouths on the Hot Pockets because we're not willing to wait the extra 30 seconds required for them to cool off. The, pr the problem is our God is not a Hot Pocket God. He's like a Crock-Pot kind of God. You, you have to let it marinate. It takes time. Are you tracking? So, so if God's going to do something for you, he's first got to work patience in you. Why? Because according to the Bible, patience is what makes you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. According to the Bible, it's in your patience that you possess your soul. So if God's going to do something for you, he's not only got to prepare the blessing for you, he's got to prepare you for the blessing. So Abraham had to wait, scholars tell us, between 25 to 30 years. Job had to learn this the hard way. Do you ever read the book of Job and you're like, okay, this is an existential conundrum of depression. 30, I don't know, 38 chapters out of the 42 are basically Job, Bildad, the Shuhite, Elihu. They're basically debating among themselves like, like why life is so horrible because a whirlwind killed Job's kids at the beginning of the story, but by the end of the story, God spoke out of a whirlwind to Job because in the place we suffer the most painfully, that's where God speaks the most powerfully. Sabian raiders stole his possessions. He was so sick, he was scraping off boils from his skin with a piece of pottery. And for about 38 chapters, Job's talking about how bad life is. And he says, I, I wish I was a stillborn. I curse the day I was born. I abhor myself. Job talked about how unjust his life had become, how he was such a good guy, but he was experiencing such bad things. But what's interesting is by Job 42, you know the story, God gave Job twice as many blessings at the end of his life compared to what he had at the beginning. The Bible says, turn ye to the strongholds in Zechariah, you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I'll restore double to you. So Job's trouble doubled, but then he got double for his trouble by the end. But what's interesting about the story of Job is scholars tell us, watch this, that his enti the entirety of his suffering was nine months. So when you read like the 38 chapters, like, gosh, his whole life was horrible. No, he had nine really bad months. In Job 42, guess what? When God restored double to him, it says that he enjoyed his great, great, great grandchildren in the story. It says for 140 years. So nine months of suffering, 140 years of bliss. Nine months is how long it takes for a woman to give birth to a child. Jesus actually said this. When a woman gives birth to a child, her sorrows turn to joy. She forgets about her labor pangs. Like, I've never heard of a woman giving birth to a child after nine months, and she's like, well, that wasn't worth it. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <clears throat> her sorrow, <laughs> her sorrow is turned to joy, right? And so Job had to go through nine months of suffering because his, his pains were his pangs. His pains of suffering were his birth pangs. And it, it gave birth to his destiny. His sorrow was turned to joy. Are you tracking? So don't judge the rest of your life on this current season. That's the problem. They spent 38 chapters judging their entire life on what was happening right now, failing to realize that this was a light affliction compared to the weight of glory. This was but a momentary moment, uh, 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 instant of suffering compared to the longevity of eternity. This was just nine months compared to 140 years of bliss. And so a lot of us, we have this problem of pausing the movie in the middle of the plot, pausing the novel in the middle of the conflict and no matter what movie you're watching or story you're reading, it's always bad in the middle of the plot. Like, go to English class and literature classes, they'll tell you, you have to have conflict to have a story. And if you're going to live a great epic, like Miltonian, Shakespearean, Homeric, what's going to happen is you're going to have a conflict and you're going to have suffering in the plot. So don't press pause. If you're going through hell, keep going. If you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, don't set up your tent there. Don't write all your songs there. Don't lay down there. Go keep going. I go through the valley. There's no way to circumnavigate it or circumvent it. The way out's the way through. You keep going. Are you tracking? So wait. Now, I, I need to say this about the story of Abram. Abraham. Initially, his name was Abram. Abram means uh, exalted father. 
Abraham means father of many nations, as we read in our text, father of many nations. Now, back then, your name really represented your story. So, I mean, if I had a kid, I'd name, I'd name it Frodo Baggins Skywalker Corson or something, because I think that <laughs> sounds cool. But back then, like, uh, you're like, Ben, that's why you don't have any kids, but be that as it may. <laughs> back in uh, ancient Hebrew culture, your name represented your story. So like, remember Abigail's husband in the Bible? Her name was, his name was Nabal. It's like, that would make the dating process very, go by very quickly. Like, what's your name? Fool. That's what Nabal means, fool. It's like, okay, no thank you. <clears throat> Back then, your name represented who you were. So in ancient culture, to not have a child was considered a curse. And so every time Abram met somebody, he'd say, hello, I am the exalted father. Wow, exalted father. How many kids do you have? Zero. How old are you? Ninety. This is cognitive dissonance. It's not adding up. Then God, God does something unique. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Do you know what Abraham? Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. He's 95 years old. Hello, I am Abraham. Wow, you are the father of many nations? You must have tons of kids, as multitudinous as the stars in space. How many children do you have? None, but I'm expecting. I'm 95. <laughs> I consider not the deadness of my wife's womb. Wow. You know what also, also is interesting about this? Do you know how God called Abram, Abraham? He called him out of Ur of the Chaldees where he was worshiping the moon god. And then Jehovah calls him to go to the land of Canaan, and Abram leaves not knowing where he's going. By the way, if you're in a hotel and you read, like, the Gideon's Bible, and you open up to, like, Genesis 12, starting near the beginning, you're like, Abraham left. Okay, this is why this is so boring, and you put it away. The, the Bible's boring. Actually, if you know the historicity and context behind the text, it's endlessly engrossing, fascinating, compelling, gripping. Because, like, like let's just take that one verse, Abraham left. Oh, it seems so boring geographically. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. That's boring. Actually, that one sentence is massive and integral and paramount to the understanding of the whole narrative arc of Scripture flying 30,000 feet up. Back then, nobody left. When it said Abraham left, you did not... It, this was the purple of spiral dynamics. It's like offer goats, blood, shake your rain stick, stick to your tribe. Very mystical, magical era of human history and consciousness. You didn't leave your tribe. Similar to, like, if you live in Compton, you don't leave your gang, apparently. I don't know. I've never been in a gang, but I imagine. From what I hear, like, you can't just, I don't think you can just leave your gang. Like, sorry, guys, I'm out. Like, they're your protection on the streets. That's how it was back then. The vendetta, blood feuds, tribalism, purple spiral dynamics, very dangerous stuff. Your tribe was your source, not only of protection, but livelihood. Like, you would cycle and recycle the blue-collar work and trade of your ancestors. In fact, some people say that the Bible is the first ancient document to give high esteem to blue-collar work. And Abram would have done that. He would have just recycled whatever his ancestors had done. So the fact that he left, like you wouldn't go more than a few miles from your hometown back then. The fact that he left, this, this was a huge step forward in human consciousness. Because what Abram was saying is, tomorrow is not going to be the same as today. Because that's all despair is. It's believing that tomorrow is going to be no different than today. How many of you woke up this morning and you're like, it's the same thing every day. The cycle that I recycle, I just, it, it, tomorrow's going to be no different than today. The fact that Abraham left, he was venturing into a bolder horizon. He was going to a new future, a brave new existence. He's saying, let's, I, I don't know where I'm going, but let's see where this Jehovah takes me. Now watch, God, this is super sick, so hang with me. The God who called him, his name in the Bible is YHWH. In fact, would everyone say that? YHWH? In theological terms, in like grandiloquent syntax, it, it's called the ineffable tetragrammaton, which basically just means the unspeakable name. YHWH are the only consonants, notice there's no vowels, only consonants, the only consonants that when pronounced correctly 
cannot be spoken with the lips closed nor with the tongue because the rabbis say YHWH are the only consonants that when you articulate them properly, you cannot speak it with your lips closed nor with your tongue because it was meant to imitate and replicate breath. So when the Bible says don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it doesn't just mean when you stub your toe, don't say the name of Jesus. No, what it's actually saying in Hebrew is don't carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. So you weren't even allowed to speak the name of God in Jewish consciousness because it was too other, holy, separate. The name of God, the Tetragrammaton, YHWH, these consonants were meant to imitate and replicate breath, the rabbis tell us. So you don't speak the name of God, you breathe the name of God. So when you would address God, it would sound like this. It was meant to be like breath. So when people say, where is God when my heart is hurting? That's like saying, what shape is yellow? God is as near to you as your very breath. Some people say, Ben, how do I get closer to God? I say, you can't. If you're the temple for the Holy Spirit, how can you get any closer to God who lives inside you? So watch this. When Paul says pray without ceasing, you're like, that's impossible. Are you sure? All through the day. You are calling on the name of God. You just need an awareness of his thereness that he's here near and dear. So when I'm going to the Del Taco drive-thru and they mistake me for a woman through the loudspeaker because I have a high voice unlike my dad. And I'm like, gender neutral, please. If you don't know, don't guess. I just need to take a deep breath. And then I can be loving again. Like, I love it when atheists are like, let me prove to you through ontological, epistemological reasoning, through a priori, a posteriori logic, uh, through dialectic and didactic uh, argument rhetoric, why there is no God apologetically. Okay, let's begin this argument so I can prove to you there's no God. Okay, I took a deep breath. Here we go. It's like, the very breath you're pulling is the name of God. The first word you ever spoke out of your mother's womb was the name of God. Steve Jobs, his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. But actually, the last word we're all going to speak is So maybe you die not when you stop breathing. Maybe you die when you can no longer say the name of God. I do believe bars have been dropped. <laughs> That's big stuff. Did you know in every major language, the word for spirit and breath is the same? Ruah in Hebrew, the Ruah hovered over the waters when the earth was without form and void. Numa in the New Testament, the spirit testifies with our spirits that we're children of God. <clears throat> How did Jesus give the Holy Spirit to his disciples in the book of John? What did he do? Breathed on them. <sighs> Gave them the spirit. Because the word for spirit and breath is the same in every major language. Watch this. Paul said to the Athenian Areopagus metaphysicians at Mars Hill, in God we live and move and have our being. In God we live and breathe and have our being. Paul said the spirit prays through us with breaths and groanings that cannot be uttered. Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. In Greek, it's literally the word picture of a baby in the arms of a dad giving a little cute exhale. So God's arms are everlasting arms. He's our Abba Father and we just give a sigh of relief in Abba's presence. What's super fascinating about this to me is this. God's name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, this is the God that calls Abram, and he changes his name, watch, from Abram to Abraham. His wife, her name was Sarai. He changes her name to Sarah. What was he doing? The creator was putting the consonants of his own identity into their reality and destiny. So he's actually naming them after himself as if they were created in his image. So from Sarai to Sarah, from Abram to Abraham, and that's true for you. The Bible says those who are in the Lord are new creatures. The word for creatures in Greek is species. You're a new species. You go from a homo sapien to a hopo sapien, a b-postle to an apostle, a Saul the persecutor to Paul the preacher. You go from an ain't to a saint. Like you're a new creature. He brings life out of death. And so no matter what you're going through today, God's as close to you as your very breath. 
can't get any closer to God who lives inside you as the temple for the Holy Spirit. So contrary to hope, believe in hope that he who promised is faithful. Don't worry, wait. Five times Matthew 6, Jesus said don't worry because the only thing worry changes is your blood pressure. Let's keep going. Romans 5 verse 1. Look at this. Let's continue on in our text. You guys doing okay so far? Okay. You guys are so lucky you live in San Diego. This is sick out here. It's just always so nice. I mean, it's the end of November and look at your weather. Like, this is great. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope. Everyone say rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Take a look again at verse 4. Perseverance produces character, Romans 5. And character produces what? Hope. Everyone say hope. hope. Look at verse 5. Now, what does not disappoint? Hope does not disappoint because of the love of God uh, spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. What a crazy thing Paul says in our passage. He says we glory in tribulation. And Paul knew what tribulation felt like. He had been beaten with whips, scourged with rods, spent a day and night at the deep, shipwrecked, was in prison more frequently than any other apostle. He got canned more than tuna. He was the apostle over many churches, faced that anxiety, perils of rivers and waters and his own countrymen and thieves. Paul was bit by a snake. Some scholars believe his wife left him. He was stoned in Lystra, left for dead. Like, Paul went through a lot of stuff, and yet he says, we, we actually, we glory in tribulation. When's the last time you gloried in tribulation? You're like, my car broke down. Woo to the who. I got dumped. Yay, God. I got my heart broken. This is amazing. When's the last time you're like, I can't pay my bills. Glory. When's the last time you're like, I enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God because I glory in my tribulations. I count it all joy when I fall into various sufferings and temptations of, of, of sundry kind. That's not usually our instinctual first response. Like when we go through suffering, we complain and remain rather than praise and be raised. You say, but Ben, like why would you glory in tribulation? Paul tells us, because tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope never makes a shame because of the love of God spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, the pneuma, the ruah, Yahweh who's given to us spread abroad in our hearts. So now we can actually say, this is what Paul's declaring, pain makes us stronger, tears make us braver, heartbreak makes us wiser, and one day we're going to thank our past for a better future because God's been faithful in the past. We're going to be faith-filled about our future, and we're going to be fulfilled today because in Luke 4.18, Jesus said, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. And the Bible says Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Emmanuel, Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Door for His Sheep, the Shepherd who lays down His life for His lambs, the Vine who gives fruit to His branches, the Word of God made flesh, the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, the End, the Resurrection, and the Life. Shall I go on? The prince of the kings of the earth, the amen, the root of David, the man child, the beginning of God's creation, he who wields the bright and morning star, he who holds the double-edged sword, the captain of our salvation, the image of the invisible God, and the anchor of hope, low-key world domination. If we're following him, then we can know that even when we go through crucifixion Black Friday, it leads to Easter egg dying, bunny hopping, Jesus Christ resurrecting Easter Sunday. Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. So we glory in tribulation. What, can, can I speak from my heart on this one? We don't need more pity from people. We need the presence of the Prince of Peace to get his power. <gasps> we don't need more sympathy from humans. We need more strength from the Savior. You know what we need? 
Navy SEAL Team 6, DEFCON 1, MI5, Green Beret, Paratrooper, Delta Force, Recon, Reconnoiter, Reconnaissance, Chris Kyle, Marcus Luttrell, Chad Williams, Seal of God, American Sniper, Lone Survivor, Good Soldiers for the Kingdom of God, who will take up the Helmet of Salvation, the Sword of the Spirit, the Shield of Faith, the Breastplate of Righteousness, the Belt of Truth, the Shoes of the Preparation of the Gospel of Peace, Fight a Good Fight, Wage a Good Warfare, Go Hunt Some Demons, Stand at the Gates of Hell, and Redirect Traffic. That's what we need. We need warriors. We need, you, you, just FYI, you didn't wake up on a cruise ship, you woke up in a battleship. Like some of you are like, man, I wish I had a choice to be born. Like you like open up the womb, you're like, nah, and then you just close it and go back. That's what Job said. I wish I was still born. Like I wish none of this had happened. So you know what we need? Listen, it, suffering is not optional. It's going to happen to all of us. The question is, are you going to react or respond? Are you going to throw a pity party? Or are you going to become more powerful? It's all based on how you respond to suffering. Paul responded in a different way. He's like, actually, I'm going to see. I'm, every, by the way, every successful person does this. They reframe their pain. Paul's like, I'm reframing my pain. So I'm going to look at my tribulation as something that produces in me warrior-like perseverance and character and hope, and hope never makes a shame. Because did you know, this is actually really interesting to me. Did you know the phrase, a broken heart, was invented by the Bible? So the first time the phrase, a broken heart, ever cropped up or popped up, dropped by or stopped by in ancient literature was in the year 1000 BC when the psalmist wrote, God heals the brokenhearted and is near to the brokenhearted. So the Bible invented the phrase, a broken heart. 900 times the Bible speaks of your heart as the sum, the seat, the center of who you are, the labyrinthine nexus of your emotional existence. Like God is looking at your heart. That's what intimacy is, into me see. He sees into you. He sees into me. Intimacy. So... In Psalm 56, God is so aware of your tribulation and your suffering and wants to give you hope so much that it says he collects all your tears in a bottle. The psalmist said, you have collected all my tears in your bottle, which is interesting because in ancient Hebrew culture, Jewish women collected their tears in tear bottles. And then when they got married, they gave it to their husband. So they thought their tears were too precious to be wasted. So their tears of sadness and gladness, they collected in a tear bottle in Hebrew culture. And then the Jewish woman, when she got married, she'd give her tear bottle to her husband. I don't know if that's romantic or depressing, but basically <laughs> she's saying like, this is one of my most precious possessions. Here's my tears. In all four gospels, we're told the story of a woman who washed Jesus's feet with her hair, her perfume, and with what else? Her tears. One scholar suggests, that scholar being my dad, that she took her tear bottle and dumped it on Jesus' feet, thereby saying, I'm the bride of Christ. Because Jewish women gave their tear bottle to their husband. And she was a shady lady, like a streetwalker of the night. She was used, abused, objectified by men, but she said, as the bride of Christ, I give my tears to him, and he'll take really good care of my heart. Just a, a warning, I hate to be depressing, but people will break your heart. If you are on the Jesus path, you will suffer a major betrayal in your life. Jesus had Judas. It's going to happen to you too. But if you give your heart to him, he will always apply the healing balm of Gilead. Take care of your heart. He will collect your tears. So rejoice, even in tribulation. Let's keep going. For the few more minutes I have with you. Okay. I, I need to bring you with me everywhere I preach. <laughs> Uh, let's go to Romans 12. So Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed. And then chapter 5, tribulation produces perseverance, character, and hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. Let's see what Paul says about hope in Romans 12, verse 12. Romans 12, verse 12. Fortunately, I'm on time, so let's keep going. Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoicing in... Are you guys there yet? How many of you guys are reading out of a leather and paper Bible? Okay, how many of you guys are uh, reading? I, I go back and forth. How many of you guys are reading your Bible from your glowing screen? Who's holier out of the bunch? <laughs> it's the glowing screens. You say, why? Because the first written words of God were recorded on a tablet, so. <laughs> Just saying. Moses, you know? Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's try again. Turn on your Bible or turn in your Bible to Romans 12, 12. Are you guys there? Okay. He says, rejoicing in hope. Everyone say rejoicing in hope. Look at this next one. Patient in tribulation. 
Crockpot, not hot pocket. Are you following me? Patient in tribulation. Look at this next one. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. I can't pray without ceasing. Are you sure? All throughout the day, you're calling on the name of the Lord that you might be saved. You just need an awareness to gently direct your consciousness back to the presence. By the way, continuing steadfastly in prayer, you're like, how do I actually, like, what does that look like? You, remember when you had a crush on a girl and you're like, you hang up first. She said, no, you hang up first and you never really hung up. That's how prayer, prayer is. Like, you go to church, like, okay, I had my time with God. But then you leave the building and you're like, ah, Lord, would you hang up first? He's like, no, you hang up first. And you just kind of stay on the line with God all through the day. You know what I mean? You just start talking to him at the locker, when you're driving in your car, when you're bored in conversation, <laughs> whatever. You're just all through the day, you're communing with the presence. So, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer. But I want to capitalize on this locus point of the beginning of verse 12. He says, rejoicing in hope. The book of Hebrews says, because we have this hope, we are very bold. Hope is something we should be bold about. We're not to be like Tigger sedated or Eeyore on steroids. Like we're to be bold about our hope, dynamic when it comes to hope, rejoicing in hope. Do you know what the word, this is the problem with the word hope today. When we think of the word hope, it's like, well, gee, golly, gosh, I hope things work out. I hope I win the Super Bowl, even though I don't use Spygate or deflated footballs and Philip Rivers is getting old. I, <laughs> see what I did there? I trash talk Tom Brady and Philip Rivers in the same sentence. That's because I'm, they're legends and I'm jealous of both of them, so I speak bad about them to feel better about myself. <laughs> I hope Selena go. <laughs> you're like, I'm not listening to anything you're saying for the rest of the message. The Christ who unites us is greater than the teams that divide us. I'm a 49ers fan. Sue me. I'm from Southern Oregon, so I have to. Really? Do we have some Niners? Oh, wow. Thank you. You're the only two people who are going to listen to the rest of my sermon. This is great. I hope Selena Gomez asks me on a date. Probably not going to happen. I hope I win the lottery. Fat chance. I hope I get a parking spot. It's packed. That's how we use the word hope. That's actually the opposite of how the Bible uses the word hope. In the Old Testament, when the psalmist, Psalm 119, said, In thy word do I hope, the word in Hebrew means knitted. So it's knitted to ultimate reality. It's not loosey-goosey. Hope doesn't unravel when our circumstances do because it's knitted to the mystery, the source, then the creator of the initial singularity, God himself, the creator, maker of all things. So because my hope is knitted, the Bible says, to the anchor. It's an anchor of hope. No matter what, when, my, when I'm sinking into depression or my circumstances are falling apart, they're actually falling into place because when things seem to be falling apart, my hope is always knitted to ultimate reality, and that's God. In the New Testament, you know, you know what the word hope means? In the New Testament, the word hope that Paul uses in Greek is the word elpis, E-L-P-I-S, elpis, and it means joyful, confident, welcome. Would everyone say joyful, confident, welcome? Number one, hope is joyful. It is the absolute expectation of coming good. It is the looking forward to the future saving acts of God predicated upon the foundation of the salvation that God's already wrought in the past. So number one, hope is joyful. Friends, we need more joy. Jesus said, I give you joy that no man can take from you. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16.11, in the presence of the Lord there's fullness of joy. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. We need more joy. That's what the word peace means, joyful. Did you know the average kid laughs 200 to 400 times every day? And the average adult laughs 13 to 17 times a day? Now, I'm not a rocket scientist. I got a 2.0 grade point average because my teachers didn't know how to teach a creative genius. <laughs> Joking. <clears throat> no, I really did get a 2.0. That's true. I don't have as many degrees as a thermometer. I don't have an alphabet after my name. I'm not Ben Carson. I'm not a neuroscientist. Even though I disappoint a lot of people, they're like, oh, we thought we were hearing Ben Carson, not Ben Corson. I'm like, no, I'm not running for president. I have as many IQ points as the uh, Miami Dolphins put on the scoreboard. It's just bad news bears. See what I did there? Now I'm trash talking the Dolphins. 
It doesn't take a genius to understand that if the average kid is laughing hundreds of times a day and the average adult is laughing 15 times a day, the older we get, the less joy we're having. It is not strong to get jaded. It is not wisdom to grow cynical. Jesus said, if you want to enter my kingdom, become as a child. Why? Because Paul said the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Ghost. If you want more joy, you've got to become more childlike. Did you know, this is crazy, a couple years ago, me and my friends were filming for our TV show in France and we were doing these flips off this dilapidated building into the Mediterranean Sea and I came out of the ocean and was laying under this umbrella. My friend Sean comes in a few minutes later limping and laughing and I said, Sean, why are you limping and why are you laughing? And Sean said, because I just got stung by a jellyfish. I said, Sean, that is not funny. Don't laugh. <clears throat> you could die. This is a crucible of excruciating pain. Jellyfish stings can be lethal, fatal. Why are you laughing? And Sean said, Ben, if I have an hour left to live, I might as well enjoy the rest of my life. So I'm going to enjoy where I'm at on the way to where I'm going. Let me have my laughter. He like said something like that. I'm like, are you kidding? My friend Sean, I was talking to him last night after service. He's one of those people who whenever he's stressed, he laughs. Do any of you have a friend who they handle stress by giggling? It's really amazing, except when you're at a funeral. But... <laughs> But Sean, like, he, he, he laughs when he's stressed. I, I want to encourage you to practice that. It's counterintuitive. It's not easy. But, like, next time you face the abyss, start laughing and see what happens. I remember right after I told that story, I was skateboarding with my friends, and I, I crashed and tore my AC, and I was, like, bleeding all over. My friends are like, are you going to laugh? I didn't feel like it, but when I did, it actually felt a lot better. Guess what? An hour later, Sean, my friend, was totally okay. Do you know what's interesting? The book of Proverbs thousands of years ago said a merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit rots the bones. And now science is catching up to that, that when you have joy, it actually works like medicine in your body. So when you laugh a hundred times, it has the same effect on your body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes. So if you want better abs, laugh at my jokes. <laughs> when you laugh, you release neuropeptides in your body, which strengthens your immune system. Depressed people get colds more frequently than non-depressed people, whereas people who laugh more scientifically live longer. So don't be sad, because sad spelled backwards is das, and das not good. So, you're like, Ben, I can't have joy. I can't do it. I have OCD. I know, I know, I know what that's like. One time my friend threw a sock at my wall in my apartment and I got out Windex and started Windexing the wall. Like, I have bad OCD. I actually have CDO. It's like OCD, but the letters are in alphabetical order, like they're supposed to be. Like, no, Ben, you don't understand. My OCD is bad. If there's a hair in my food, it's like game over for me. It's like you're eating bacon. You're worried about a hair in your food. There's a pig in your food, and that's what you're concerned about. What, what we need is more joy because that's what hope in the Bible is. It is Joy. Everyone say joyful. joyful. Secondly, I'm already going long. Secondly, everyone say confident. That's what the word means. Everyone say confident. confident. Okay, okay, when I think of confidence, I think of Kanye West pre as Bob Dylan, like artistic Christianity at the, uh, that he converted to recently. Have you read Kanye West's tweets a few years ago? Unbelievable. They're amazing. They're hilarious. He literally tweeted to the world, I wish I had a friend like me. He, he, he literally tweeted this to the world. This is good. He said, um, he said, I may not be tall and skinny, but I'll settle for being the greatest artist of all time as a consolation. <laughs> he tweeted, I believe in surrounding myself with winners. That's why my room is full of mirrors. <laughs> what a boss. That takes a lot of hoots, but to say that. Kanye literally said, you may be talented, but you're not Kanye West. Tweeted that to the world. But you know who would give Kanye a run for his Yeezys when it comes to confidence is Moses. In Numbers 12.3, it says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Who wrote that verse? Moses. <laughs> like the book is attributed to him. But listen, Moses felt like hashtag current mood, I'm a piece of garbage. Ten times at the burning bush that did existentialist poetry, I am that I am. He gave ten excuses why he couldn't be used because he said, I can't speak. But he was such an eloquent speaker that he could say the same thing in ten different synonymous ways. And the New Testament says he was actually eloquent in Pharaoh's courts, but he didn't see himself correctly. So, so why would he write such a confident saying over his life? I'm, and he didn't even say it in first person. 
He said it in third person, like athletes and rappers do. Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth, says Moses about Moses autobiographically. (laughs) If you believe this is inspired by God, this book, then if God told Moses to write that about himself, the most humble thing he could do is elevate God's opinion over Moses' life above what his own opinion about himself was. It is not humble to say, no one likes me, everyone hates me, why don't I just go eat worms? When God is saying over your life, you're the head, not the tail, you're above, not beneath, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, all your days are written in my book, Malachi 3.17, you're my jewel, you're my pearl of great price, that the master of the kingdom would bankrupt the heavens to buy to become a penniless teacher from Nazareth, to dig you up from a field and wash you in the water of his word and blood. Hebrews uh, says, or Ephesians says, that you are his workmanship, his poema, his masterpiece, you are a king, you're a priest, Revelation 3 says you're going to sit with Jesus on his throne. Psalm 8 says you're crowned with glory and honor. And the psalmist said, the earth he has given to the sons of men. So the most humble thing you can do is confidently speak over your life what God says about you, just like God said, Moses, right? Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth because if you humbly and obediently submit to God's word over your life, it will give you confidence. It will. So joyful, confident, does anybody remember what the last thing was? Welcome. Welcome. This joyful confidence is the welcome whereby all the miracles of God come into our life. Let's close with Romans 15. So Romans 4, Abraham, contrary to hope, believed in hope. Romans 5, tribulation, produces character, perseverance, and hope. Romans 12, we rejoice in hope. Joyful, confident, welcome, we rejoice. And finally, let's close with Romans 15 verse 4, and verse 13. You guys doing all right? Okay. Romans, oh, you better be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have, say it out loud, hope. Why was the Bible written? To give you? That's what Paul says. If you walk away from a Bible study with less hope rather than more hope, it's a giant exercise in missing the point. This is not blues, it's good news. That's what the gospel is. Let's close with verse 13. Verse 13, Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's the one word you're really getting out of this message today? Hope. The Bible is written to give you hope. The divine himself embodies and personifies hope. He's the God of hope. And how you perceive him dictates how you receive from him. So now you'll abound in hope by the power of the Spirit. As we conclude this Bible study, you might say, okay, Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 12, Romans 15. We've been looking at the narrative arc of Scripture, which gives us joyful, confident, welcome, peace, hope. But Ben, of course you're going to be hopeful. You're speaking in San Diego today. You're young. You're happy. You're energetic. Of course you're going to have hope. But I I want to share this last part from my heart, and this is kind of intense. I didn't just come here and say, like, hey, I wonder what I should tell the people at Horizon Rancho Santa Fe in San Diego today. Like, I wonder what would be a fun topic. That's not how I do this. For me, the reason I talk to you about hope is not just because it is the number one issue, depression is the number, suicide and stuff is the number one issue of our generation. It's because I'm having a schizophrenic conversation with my own soul and I hope you are enjoying listening to me talk to myself. (laughs) This message is really for me because I went through 10 years of chronic depression, clinical depression where I was suicidal. I, there was one time where I actually planned my method, how to kill myself. And one time I even took up a knife on a different occasion to kill myself. And I would take my friend's motorcycle and ride it as fast as I could without a helmet, even though I didn't really know how to ride a motorcycle. I didn't have a license. I would like walk on skyscraper ledges, hoping that maybe, sort of morbidly macabre, wondering if I might fall off. Like 10 years of chronic depression, clinical depression, and being suicidal. A few years ago, I went through a romantic heartbreak that made me think I would never be happy again. My friend Jared Wilson, I don't know if you saw it, it made national news, but he's a pastor who recently killed himself, and I was talking to his family a few hours before it happened. It was totally unexpected in that regard, like none of us knew, even though we we were aware that he struggled with depression. 
Um, my dad's first wife died in a car accident, so that now, like, what the Kennedy curses to politics, the Corson curses to the Calvary world, like, when I was a kid, I remember my sister was joking with my dad. She said, Dad, I'm never going to get married. My dad said, why not? And she said, because you always tell me to marry somebody godlier than me, but I'm the godliest person I know. So, like, <laughs> she was joking around. The next day, my sister Jessica died in a car accident. And the way that we heard the news is my brother came home and told our family, Jessica found her man. She found her man. The bride of Christ finally is in the presence of someone more godly than she is. And my brother who delivered that news, he died a few months ago of cancer and we lived 10 minutes away from each other, worked at the same church. And when I was at his deathbed with my dad about eight months ago, during his last moments, this song came on the radio, just happened to shuffle on, that was from the 90s, called Take My Hand and Walk. And I started crying more, and my dad started crying more. And he said, do you know what song this is? And I said, that was the song that played at Jessica's memorial service. And it just happened to come on the radio right then. And somebody told me after my brother passed away, he heard that song, and then he went to heaven to join my sister. Somebody told me, your brother graduated. And I just picture that song, Take My Hand and Walk. Isaiah says, God upholds you with his hand. With one hand, he takes my brother's hand and walks him down the graduation aisle and says, well done, good and faithful servant, you've graduated. With the other hand, he walks my sister down the wedding aisle and says, you've found your man, you're the bride of Christ. But when you go through real tragedies and just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in your life and you've all gone through stuff, it, it's no longer like a, like I guess what you guys see is hope and vibrancy, but, but what you haven't seen is the darkness. When you sit in the ashes, you have to dig deep and dig in your heels and say, what do I really believe? Because if this is true, then nothing else matters. If this isn't true, then nothing matters at all. To me, do I really believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Because if I really believe that, I'm not saying goodbye to my brother and sister. I'm saying, I'll see you soon. If I really believe that tribulation actually works in me, perseverance to make me a warrior, then of course I'm going to glory in it. If I fall into trials and I count it all joy because I believe a merry heart actually works like medicine, then of course, the, the question is, do you believe this stuff? Because I, I, I share these stories with you not to be a bleeding heart and to make you feel sorry for me. I really don't want anyone saying I'm sorry for your losses. That's, that's not, I, I don't want that. I'm sharing this with you because people are impressed by our accomplishments, but they connect with our weaknesses. Jesus didn't just say, hear my words. He said, touch my wounds. And what I'm trying to tell you is this hope message saved my life. God is everything. This isn't a motivational speech. It's like either the presence of God is all there is and that's all that matters or God doesn't exist and nothing matters at all. So when I'm going through my day and I'm living a meaningless existence, not even giving any thought to Yahweh, even though he's as near to me as my very breath, it's inane and asinine and insane. But if I believe that the God of hope wants me to abound in hope, he gave me over 3,500 promises in the Bible because the scriptures give me hope and tribulation works in me, perseverance and character, which bring me hope, then of course I'm going to rejoice in hope and against hope, contrary to hope, I will believe in hope even when the odds are stacked against me. Do you believe this stuff? Because I'm telling you these stories simply to share with you one simple thing. If God could heal my broken heart, he can heal yours too. God's given me hope, so whatever you've gone through, he'll give you hope too. Walk with him. Talk to him. Trust in him. Follow after him. Lean into him. Your plot will be dark, but you're going to have a happily ever after. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. I pray for this group, Lord, that right now you would infuse and breathe fresh hope into every person here. There are some people here, I'm sure, even statistically or prophetically, that are really going through hell right now. Speak over them your word of life, hope, joyful, confident, welcome. Yeah.
We breathe you in, God. In you, we live and breathe and have our being. Give new hope to broken hearts today. For those here who are joyful, give them more hope. For those here who are connected with someone who's going through clinical depression and they don't understand, please give them empathy and compassion toward those who are hurting. I pray for all of us that you would give us a fresh infusion of the presence of the God of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? I didn't get to cover all the content, and I did actually go 59 minutes. So so thank you for being patient. Um, If you want to go a little slower through some of this and cover some of this content, uh, I'll meet you back there at the book table, and you can read it. It's a pretty quick read. Um, And I just want to see our generation being changed forever. Let's change the world. We might as well. The world needs hope. That's the great need today. And it's found in the God of hope as imaged in Jesus. Let's sing. Thanks for joining the Horizon Church podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel. And if this message has blessed you, please share it either directly or on social media. If you live in the San Diego area, we'd love to have you join us at a weekend service. Or to catch our live stream, visit horizon.org slash live every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific. If you'd like to learn more or partner with us, simply go to horizon.org. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next time.